So this room came about as a, I mean, a, a, over a month ago, the, the seed was really do a survey of Dr. Rob Whitley's new book called Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health, right, Dr. Rob? That's um, it. So a book which is really a generous compendium of the issues facing men today. So issues such as why they don't seek out therapy, why traditional therapy models just don't land with them. Um, so Dr. Whitley is a faculty member at McGill University and has done just a vast number of academic articles. He's, he's investigated as chief investigator and published findings on women's and men's mental health. And I'll allow him to speak a little about any kind of ongoing projects or work that he's doing. But suffice to say, he's dedicated quite a few recent years to studying the unique needs of men in the mental health sphere. And again, check out his book, uh, men's issues and men's mental health, because it is just this omnibus of mental health concerns for men. And really, it's a manifesto for where we need to go in the future that's based on empirical evidence on men's issues of a various quality, which we'll be talking about today straight from the source. We'll learn from him what it is men need the most in mental health, what's driving their mental deterioration now, and where we can step in, whether you're a therapist, psychiatrist, whatever. Um, so it, uh, and I can also I can toss it off to you really quick, Dr. Rob, if you want to add any introductory statements before I introduce Dr. Paul. Um, just to say I'm a little bit behind on my emails, and I just saw, Jeremy, that you sent me an email not so long ago saying, how would you like me to introduce you? And I would just like to say you didn't need my uh, advice or guidance because it was a perfect introduction. That was, that was very nice and very generous. And uh, thank you for uh, all your kind words. And I, I don't think there's anything I need to add at this stage. Well, no worries. Thank you for that. Um, so Dr. Paul Dobransky is a psychiatrist who I've known for a few years here. Um, I'll just throw out there that he is, is also a huge proponent for mental health uh, concerns, specifically for men. So he's director of menspsychology.com, a publisher of Men's Psychology Magazine, in addition to being an author of books on the psychology of human courtship and friendship. And that's through the Penguin Books Publishing House, by the way. So if you've heard of Penguin Books, which you probably have, Dr. Paul writes for them. Um, he's a blogger for Psychology Today. And if you want to check out his work, look for Of Minds and Men. Uh, so Dr. Paul is a psychiatrist, whereas I'm a licensed therapist, and um, Dr. Rob Whitley is a decorated psychologist. So try to keep up the different specialties here. We're a grab bag of mental health specialists for men here uh, and women, but um, that's what's bringing us together. So Dr. Paul also is the director of Romantopedia.com, uh, which is a hub for all things of his romantic dynamics model that addresses human courtship. And how men and women get together, um, what that dance looks like. It can also be applied to same sex, same gender relationships. But Dr. Gabransky um, is an authority on courtship and romance. So that's something I want to highlight about him. And without further ado, I'll toss it off to Dr. Paul to maybe offer some initial thoughts here and why he wanted to get us all together today, because I want to credit this as his brainchild here. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, I would say that uh, today I, I was really excited to get together with you and Dr. Whitley, Rob. 
um, you know, for numerous reasons, uh, one of which being here I go introducing him again, adding adding yet more to his introductions. But um, uh, uh, Rob Whitley is also a blogger for Psychology Today, and uh, I've seen his work on there uh, as I write for them, and I and I really liked it. Um, I also know him somewhat indirectly through some of the members of the British Psychological Society with whom I'm friends. And um, some of the most prodigious authors in the area of men's psychology would certainly include uh, Rob Whitley, but also uh, Dr. John Barry, uh, Louise Lydon, Martin Seeger over in London. And it, it was through them that I, that I also had heard of Rob and wanted to look him up, get to know him better as one of the only uh, male uh, treaters in North America and head of um, a lot of research studies pertaining to the study of males, which maybe surprisingly uh, has not, it has been rather scant um, in the academic literature for decades. Now, I've been around for quite a while over 25 years in practice. And back at the beginning of my training, um, a, a lot of the assumptions were that many research studies, if not most, were done on male patients at that time. That's how long ago <laughs> I trained. But but since that time, it kind of crept up on me and surprised me that, that in the academic literature, uh, more and more and more uh, was done in the study of females which makes sense, you know, in its own right. But in the recent decade, so scanty, the, the literature on males, what they need, especially in psychotherapy and or in behavioral health in general, in psychiatry as well, that it, it actually has taken Herculean efforts on the beginning in, in Britain, beginning in London, to say, hey, we ought to study this as a demographic group, males in general, because there's not a lot done that kind of uh, sorts them out statistically and analyzes what exact kinds of therapy do they need the most and do they do the best with for things like their mood or their satisfaction in life or their success or their performance in life and their fulfillment. Uh, in who they are, uh, both biologically and psychologically. And so it, it, it took a lot of the psychologists in, in the British Psychological Society and elsewhere. There are numerous other researchers as well. Um, I think the gentleman's name is Carlson in, out in California, um, who has done a lot of research and has prefaced uh, some of the books of these new emerging authors in this emerging field and it, it's worth us looking into, um, if for no other reason than the fact that uh, males are brothers, friends, fathers, sons, grandfathers, and spouses to others. And so just like what affects women affects men, what affects men affects women as well. So even though it's called uh, men's psychology, and I, I believe it to be a new emerging field, if you're interested in what is the latest, hottest research that's going to grow substantially, the uh, population is half the planet uh, in coming years and decades, uh, it's probably men's psychology. 
So I wanted uh, to introduce uh, Rob again uh, in this way, because I'd like to highlight him and his work. I'd like us all to learn more about what he's done. As to my knowledge, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but one of the only researchers in men's psychology in North America, to my knowledge. If you could tell us a little more about uh, kind of your trajectory, your story, uh, how you uh, came to choose some of the research topics and 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 themes uh, that have appealed to you over the past couple decades. Um, I'll jump in here. Uh, some things that struck me, you, you mentioned that uh, your entree into studying men a bit more than most was through first studying women. And uh, it reminded me of a similarity to Dr. John Barry in London. He, he originally was studying PCOS, polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome, and uh, through the process had a, had a similar experience as you where he would go to uh, seminars. I don't want to completely speak for him, but this, you know, he had told me this and he, he said this publicly that he would go to seminars. And the big thing that has, has always struck me about why this is crucial, almost a public health emergency to look into is the proportion of males who complete suicide well known in my field for a long, long time, and uh, almost 80% in the US and similarly in the UK, um, completed suicides are uh, almost 80% male. Now, why is that? Um, it's not that we want more female suicides, but if it's that imbalanced, certainly and logically, we must not be doing things right or enough for males to to prevent that kind of proportion. So it's interesting that you started by studying women and then kind of had an entree into studying men from there um, that were essentially intertwined. Um, one, uh, one thing that also struck me is that you studied Aboriginal uh, societies and, that, and uh, it reminded me of uh, long, long ago when I, I was 20 years old only uh, I did a program in undergrad school called Semester at Sea, and uh, I had the chance to work with an anthropologist um, who then became an author, Kathy Rikes, who wrote Bones and the various TV shows and books. And she was an amazing professor and, and kind person, and she helped me uh, prepare to go study the aboriginals called the Samai in Malaysia when our when our ship stopped in Malaysia. And it was fascinating. One of the uh, it, very few things and it, at my crude academic level at that time, 20 years old, um, I had a translator and I, I interviewed uh, these villagers uh, who lived in stilt houses. And one man in particular offered to let me stay in his home, in his stilt house. And um, they're a polygamous society and his biggest complaint, his biggest gripe was that he only has two wives, whereas everybody else in his village who is male has multiple more. Um, so go figure that <laughs> interesting thing from, from my past, my only studying of aboriginals ever. Um, I think, um, you know, a, a good place to go next, I'd, I'd be curious as to your 
your your view on this. If suicide is almost 80% male, and if there have been all of these uh, research studies and surveys to date, scanning through the literature and actually among male patients as to their experience of psychotherapy, uh, both you and, and John Barry certainly have uh, elucidated several particular uh, fields of psychology, most of them much newer than cognitive behavioral therapy that seem especially appealing and more importantly, uh, efficacious for males uh, with mood problems, with failure, uh, trouble having success and fulfillment in life. And I'll just list some of them. Um, one of the most important is trauma-informed therapy as almost a universal uh, important factor to consider by therapists that since since you, Rob, mentioned uh, one of the things that Barry and Seeger have honed in on um, in their studies of what are the biggest impact areas for males, uh, things that block them from getting therapy or, or things that are just obstacles to doing better, but simultaneously may be normal and natural for them and possibly biologically determined, I think they are. And they, they have uh, illuminated three dimensions. Um, one is the protector, provider, provisioner dimension of masculinity. A second is the fighting and winning. That does not mean violence. In fact, testosterone is not associated with violence. It's associated with competition. So fighting and winning, as in sports, for example. And then thirdly, self-control of the emotions. And I thought that was an interesting third major dimension that they're starting to elucidate for us all in their research, that these three areas are crucial areas for males specifically, and that control of the emotions is the third one, almost uh, like stoicism. If one is attracted to uh, the philosophy of the Stoics, uh, that would be a fit. And so I, one question to you, Dr. Rob, would be how, the, how that gels with what you were mentioning, that, that um, we shouldn't blame and shame males for not speaking up, emoting, being, quote, vulnerable. Uh, that's a hot topic, too. There are several authors, one in particular I'm thinking of, very hot with uh, anxiety uh, disorders, a sociologist who who proclaims that vulnerability is where it's at. To, to be courageous, you have to be vulnerable, which always has struck me as just going against instinct somehow for males. And, and I think it connects to that third dimension that... Um, uh, Dr. John Barry, Louise Lydon, Martin Seeger uh, study in London that that males strive to control their emotions and that they feel good if they achieve doing so. And it probably relates to their need for autonomy too. Therapy. They want to be but we're losing you at in therapy rather than instruction. Well, we're losing you. The audio is cutting out. Okay, I'll see what I can do now about it's that. Bad. But let's uh, turn this over to Dr. Rob.
What do you, what do you think of these topics? Yeah, um, I just wanted to say my the last time I was talking, I had headphones and a microphone. I've taken them off. Is this any better? It is. Yes. Yeah, it's superb. Sorry, I was looking for the button here. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll just I'll just do it without the headphones then. Um. Yeah, protector, provider, fighting, winning, self-control. Um, I think there's a common theme amongst all those domains which have been identified by Barry and Seeger and others have written about this, um, which is kind of having a role in, in, in society or even a, a mic, having a role within your family or having a role, um, having a, me a role which you subjectively think is meaningful. And, and this has been shown in, in many research studies to be very important for men. And, and traditionally, this meaningful role has come through two or three common domains. Uh, one is in employment. So if you are a valued employee, you know, it could be the, a, a humble job working for a humble organization. Um, but you, you, you're you a cog in a machine. You have a role. You're, you're helping that small organization uh, function and that that small organization is part of society that helps society function, that that, that is very important for the self-esteem and the self-worth of a male. Um, the second area where men typically have a find a meaningful role in life is within the family. Um, so being the, the head of a household where uh, the man uh, has a wife or and or children, um, has pets, has a house which they, they, they own and they, they care for and maybe they look after and it's part of their life and it's, it's part of the community in a way, part of the collective environment that we, we, we enjoy and we look at and we share. Um, that these were This was a very important part of, of being a, um, a man. And, and, a, and a third area, um, I'm trying hard to think of a word that would unify the concept, but I, I guess kind of the, the protector, the mentor, the teacher, teacher role. Um, so in, in times past, uh, Canada and the US, I believe, used to have much bigger armed forces, had much bigger reserve, had much bigger militia. Uh, many men served in that and that, that, that gave them an important role in their community. Um, there was volunteering, there was more volunteering, there were things like cadets, there were there's boys brigades, there's youth sports clubs, there's um, uh, there's uh, parents, teachers associations, and, and Robert Putnam wrote, wrote a book uh, a few, many years, well, 20 years ago now, more or less, and it's been shown to be the case since that all these areas have decreased in prominence and, and in, uh, in terms of the opportunities that they provide, churches, synagogues, religious organizations is another place where people find that kind of teacher, mentor, protector role. Um, and I guess the key thing in my book is that all three of those domains that I've listed, the employment, the family, the, the kind of wider civil society role that men can take, that, that men can take within wider civil society, um, ha have all experienced huge shattering problems over the last few decades compared to what was happening in the 20th century. So, for example, in terms of employment, there's been a, a shift in the economy to this service-based, knowledge-based economy. Uh, many plants have closed, they've been outsourced. Um, many factories have closed, many centers of manufacturing in kind of North America um, have have closed without a suitable alternative coming in. Um, 
uh, we know that there are small towns and rural areas that used to survive on fishing, on, on forestry, on, on mining. Um, again, things have closed. And we do know that these kind of blue collar men in particular, and men in these smaller towns, rural areas, tend to have worse mental health, higher issues, higher opioid issues, higher rates of suicide. Um, and that's the kind of huge issue, the, the employment amongst men and, and opportunity, um, which, which people have not been talk, talking about. Um, the uh, second issue I talked about, the family. Well, again, we know that about 40% of marriages now end in divorce. Um, they often end in acrimonious court, court battles where typically uh, the male will not be awarded custody and will get the typical see uh, their child once every two weeks you know and sometimes the uh, the mother is not agreeable to that and there are problems in in the visitations and they get cancelled or they don't happen um, and that can be a huge issue for many men and you know they may end up going from having a um, a, a pleasant house in a pleasant neighborhood to living in a kind of bedsit next to a highway and rented accommodation uh, a child they used to care for and teach and see you know every day every evening they're seeing once twice a month for a limited amount of time um, and again that's a, a huge issue and even thinking more recently home ownership is something which uh, men of my generation kind of took for granted but um, the, the younger the younger men coming up in, in a lot of places, it's very difficult to get the money for a deposit to buy a house. And you end up living in a rented house with four other people, which is kind of fun in your 20s. But when you start getting into your 30s and 40s, it's not really how most men in Western societies would like to live. Um, and like I said, the third point about civil society, a lot of research shows that men, men are, get that there's fewer opportunities for men to be involved in these kind of, you know, volunteer militia, National Guard, reserve forces, uh, volunteering in churches. And, and, and on that on that third domain, there's also been a change in the culture, whereas uh, maybe it's for the better in some regards, maybe it's for the worse in other regards. Whereas where in times past, if you were a man and you wanted to teach the, uh, the, the local sports team, the, the local uh, kids soccer team, or you wanted to help out at the, the cadet formation or if you wanted to um, help out at a youth center or youth group um, you certainly I'm sure would have had to fill in a few forms and, and this and that but my understanding from what, what I've heard from people and from what I've read in the literature is that there's been a decrease in men interested in doing that partly because they're concerned that they will be uh, uh, there will be concerns about their motive and that they'll People will be worried, but perhaps this person is a paedophile or this person is a threat to, to, to the organization and they have to get three references and they have to jump over a lot of hurdles. And like I said, you know, I'm in two minds about this. There, ha there has been child abuse problems and child abuse is a huge predictor of men's mental health issues and women's mental health issues later in life. But 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 it, it, I think it's also created an impediment to to this uh, intergenerational cohesion that we maybe used to see when I was younger and intergenerational contact and opportunities which are good for the mental health of older men and also good for the mental health of younger boys, especially those being brought up by single mothers where there might not be much masculine presence. And, and we do know statistically that this has, this has decreased this kind of involvement in civil society organisations. So 
um, there's kind of three which are three topics which I, I feel are very important need to be talked about more. Well, Rob, thank you. I mean, that's a that's a lot of uh, a lot for us to wrap our minds around. Um, one of the things that strikes me about some of the material that you're informing us about is that a lot of it, a lot of it reminds me of more sociologic uh, situations and data, things like uh, marriage and divorce, child rearing, um, child custody, incarceration, jobs, and then their connection to male depression and suicide. It, it almost sounds like we, um, we most easily gravitate to discussing sociologic topics or in, or in sociologic terms, what is wrong with the world or what is wrong with men or what is wrong, you know, for anyone of any demographic group. And I thought now might be a chance to highlight two models that I think are really crucial as lenses through which to see uh, male psychology or masculine psychology. So I'm gonna go ahead and talk briefly about those. But then the, the grand question I think that I'm gonna have after that for both Jeremy and yourself is the big question of all, what is masculinity? So I want you to think a little about that. That's probably the biggest question that we could have in a topic on men's psychology. What is masculinity? Is it sociologically determined? Is it biologically determined? Hint, I think it is the latter, uh, but I respect uh, you if, if you don't. Um, or is it a mixture? So I, I think the most important model uh, for us to use uh, that I would propose that we consider using is the biopsychosocial model. Uh, originally a nursing model in nursing psychiatry, uh, the biopsychosocial model divides the determinants of any behavioral problem into three areas. And they're pretty complete, pretty universal if, if we divide into these three areas. And I use it every day on every patient that I see to help me understand what the contributors to a problem are as I diagnose and then treat. So for the, the rest of the audience, let me just introduce it in kind of ordinary person terms. So the bio part of the biopsychosocial model means biology, and it means that which is similar to computer hardware. If our brains were computers, it would be like the hardware. It would, it would be genetically uh, heritable to some degree at least. It would pertain to brain chemistry and brain circuitry that are common to all human beings who have a human brain for the most part. Even though we all exist on bell curves as well, that lets us respect individuals as individuals who are unique. And yet there is still a statistical average in behavior and in these determinants. So the bio part of biopsychosocial is that which medications treat in my diagnostic and treatment world. So I look for the biological features, factors, symptoms in a patient's story 
And that clues me into whether A, a medicine might be useful and make sense, and which family or families of medicine make sense. So that's the biology part. The second part, psychology, is very broad. And in ordinary person terms, it stands for psychology. And it has to do with uh, your life story, your life's narrative, events that have happened to you, what you learned from them, the temperament you were born with, and then the personality style that you grew around that as you aged, uh, traumas that you've suffered, uh, book learning uh, that you've experienced. So experiences, education, all the things you've taken in, beliefs that you have developed as a result of experiences you've had, you know, to my mind, all add up to your psychology. So your psychology, if our brains were computers, would be like the software that runs on the biological hardware. That's kind of how I, I think of it, more of an engineering uh, kind of model. And then the last uh, part of biopsychosocial, the social is the sociological factors, which has to do with the environment. It doesn't have to do with what you were born with, what you inherited genetically, uh, or even necessarily what you came to believe or develop in your personality, your life's narrative, the traumas you've had. It's the outside of you part. If you believe there's such a thing as a personal boundary, sociology, in my layman's understanding, I'm not a sociologist by training, although all psychiatrists and psychologists learn a lot of sociology in school, it, it pertains to the environment, to culture, groups of people, customs, uh, religions, all the features of culture and demographic groups. And while statistical analysis can apply to it, I've always seen sociology as having more to do with public policy and politics and programs in the community and what is important to a society to try to change about people's environments. So much of the research, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the validity of various sociologic uh, research studies versus bench science, hard science, like biology, chemistry, physics, and how do they compare? And a lot of what I've seen over the, the past several decades seems to me to be rather poll-like or survey-like, which to my understanding as a lay sociologist is more like a wish list of what people would want and, and what, what bothers them, what challenges them, what, what gives them troubles in life that would be good to change by way of policy but it's polling data as opposed to that which is never changing and universal to all human beings, or let's say to all males or all females. And so the biopsychosocial model takes in all of it, all of the contributors to somebody's problems, but they aren't the same. They don't carry the same weight and they aren't the same kind of data. So biology, psychology, and sociology are three categories that contribute to how we experience life and how we experience behavior, but they aren't the same and they don't work by the same principles.
yet they all contribute. So if we divide any problem up in these three areas, I think it really helps us understand where the working parts are in any kind of problem. And it, it plays out in clinical practice, of course, or the model wouldn't exist. So the biopsychosocial model, I think, is crucial as a lens. Now, I have one other lens for you. It comes from the evolutionary psychologists, and you've all heard of it. It's pretty hot in marketing and sales and business um, and, and was for a time in the area of psychology until it was disproven anatomically, but it turns out it makes sense from a data perspective, and that's the triune brain model. So everyone's heard of that these days. It's kind of a hot topic. Uh, the triune brain, uh, the evolutionary psychologists, um, in some ways view the, the working of the mind, workings of the mind as being like computer software packages that are linked and work together at times and, and um, conflict with each other at other times, but for the most part um, work in harmony. And uh, the instincts are the, that which is autonomic, automatic, reflex, and instinct-based, what Freud would have called the unconscious, is rendered in the software package that you could call the reptilian brain. So a lot of people have heard of the reptilian brain and that that's what drives us to purchase products impulsively. And so marketers and salespeople really love the reptilian brain. How can, how can we trigger people to purchase? Um, social media uh, runs a lot on the reptilian brain of the evolutionary psychologists. How do we get people to click, clickbait, and all of these sorts of topics? So that which runs us without us having to think. And, and that which also pertains to the operation of the body. Uh, we wouldn't have to have to think about our heart rate and control our heart rate consciously. It's controlled unconsciously. We wouldn't have to, want to have to think about our breathing rate consciously. That would be a lot of work constantly all the time and how would we do it while we're sleeping so we we can let our autonomic system run uh, the functions of the body in this way so the reptilian brain also then pertains to the body and its automatic functions the mammalian brain is next uh, centered in the limbic system if it were located on hardware it would be in the areas of the brain where we have emotional functionality and circuitry. The mammalian brain um, the prefix is mammal, and uh, mammals are the group of animals that bond, uh, mother bonding with infant and uh, forming an emotional bond. And uh, simplistically, you, you could say uh, this was the first that nature figured out how to get separate creatures to work together it was through this kind of bonding, which you could call friendship uh, or even love. Um, when we say we love our pet, it's real. And we can say it's a real friendship that we have with our pet dog or cat or any kind of pet. And that's because we formed an emotional bond. Doesn't mean we intellectually can converse or use language, but we have an emotional bond. So in a sense, we can work together with other creatures, mammals. So the mammalian brain, the emotional uh, center of the brain, the software of the emotions. And then finally, 
what sets humans apart, maybe humans and dolphins, perhaps. Uh, what sets us apart is the higher brain, the size of our cerebral cortex, what Freud would call the conscious mind, uh, the center of executive function, as well as character, um, ethics, intuition, decision-making, wisdom, uh, constructive behavior, what the economists uh, who do game theory would call win-win behavior versus win-lose behavior, or what the ancient philosophers would call virtue versus vice is in the higher brain software, the conscious mind software. If it had to be localized anatomically, it would be in the cerebral cortex, of which we have a very large one. So I found that model also alongside uh, the biopsychosocial model to be very, uh, very useful for slicing and dicing different aspects of behavior into what area of mind is this functionality coming from? And so I'll, uh, they say journalists, number one, you know, rule is, you know, don't bury the lead. So I won't bury the lead. I'll say, I, I believe masculinity and femininity in parallel to be localized in the reptilian brain as sets of instincts. And so a part of my theoretical thinking has centered on uh, joining or an amalgam between evolutionary psychology and the very old Jungian psychology, where Jungians talk about archetypes and a collect collective unconscious um, where the, there are universals to behavior that can be seen throughout world literature um, and myth and folklore throughout all history, even from very disconnected cultures that if a story lasts a thousand years, there must be something appealing to all people who partake in that story, or it wouldn't last. It'd be like an art house film that everybody forgets. And so this concept of Jung's, that there's something universal in behavior, which implies that there's a biologic determinant to it, gets passed along. And I think it's not just universal to all humans, both males and females biologically, but I think there are sets of instincts unique to males and unique to females. And they're unconscious, so we're not doing them on purpose and we're not learning them as at school. And they aren't roles that the sociologists love to talk about as if we were all Oscar-winning actors who could portray a role 24-7 for decades. For our whole lives that doesn't make any logical sense to me but biology makes sense especially unconscious or instinct based biology makes sense to me because we're born with it it lasts with us for life we don't have to think about our heart beating or our breathing it still happens all our lives and i think that's what part of what masculinity and femininity are sets of instincts in the reptilian brain so I'll lead with that. And then I'm curious to think what you, Dr. Rob Whitley and Jeremy think, what is masculinity? And if you differ uh, with what I just said, that's fine by me. I'm just putting that out there, what I think uh, is true and what I have seen clinically. Well, um, that's a very interesting um, 
theorization and set of propositions fall as certainly very stimulating my brain, but hopefully the, both the reptilian and the mammalian parts. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's certainly agree that evolutionary psychology is very important as a very important discipline to consider when when talking about men and women and men and male and female preferences um male and female proclivities and and we can see through surveys and through uh, attitudes tests beliefs common beliefs that, that there are differences between men and women and it and um, it's almost become heretical to say that in some parts of the university and in some places, but but that's a fact. We have so much data to support that. It's it's silly that I'm even having having to emphasise this point. Um, in my book, I talk about, for example, that uh, uh, the, the disproportionate amount of men working in certain prof professions and the disproportionate amount of women working in other professions. So I, I can't remember the exact figures. I have them in the, my book, but um, I, I think uh, over ninety percent of early childhood educators are, are, are female. I think over eighty percent of primary school teachers are, are female. Elementary school teachers. Um, uh, I, I think uh, over uh, ninety percent of um, uh, of people working uh, as I think vets, vet, vet, or either at vet school or who are currently practicing animal veterinarians, it's over eighty percent of women. Uh, whereas we, if we look at jobs uh, such as the military, the frontline services in the military, um, if we look at kind of uh, engineering and manufacturing, um, where I think people are using their hands, creating things with their hands. Um, if we look at roofing, going up onto a roof to repair a roof or to replace a roof, um, those kind of jobs, we see kind of 80, 90 percent men. Now, there are some people very simplistically who attribute that to um, sexism or they attribute it to uh, um, toxic masculinity, that, that, that men would like to work in daycare centres, but they won't do it because they're scared of being... Uh, stigmatized by their fellows or, or they think it's a shameful job for a man but but I think those kind of simple statistics which as far as I can see are, are quite universal across societies uh, anthropologically I'm not aware of any societies where men st stay and 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 raise raise uh, young children and whether in the formal case such as a daycare centre or informally in a kind of family group and, and women are going out to do these kind of jobs. Um, it's too simplistic for me to attribute that to a patriarchy and I think it just goes back to evolutionary psychology and, and is consistent with everything you just said there Paul, which is that men and women have evolved differently with different preferences, different proclivities, different interests and uh, um, and, and men uh, are more likely and more um, happy to and perhaps more biologically programmed to to take risks to be exposed to dangers to be to be happy with being exposed to those risks and dangers which takes them into those kind of more dangerous risky fields as part of being a man both biologically psychologically socially to 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 want to for example maybe be in an infantry battalion lead an infantry battalion in a war um well rob or, uh, that reminds me a little bit of uh, economics and consumerism in the sense that I, I personally tend to have an aversion to politics and talking about politics and we're, we're so surrounded by 
you know, all these memes and really name calling is all it is, bullying, uh, things like toxic this, toxic that, toxic masculinity. We're getting into the subject of patriarchy and deep feminist theory and things like this. Don't need to. Uh, you know, my, my easy answer to people that say, hey, is uh, toxic masculinity real? Is, uh, well, toxic anything isn't real. The only thing that's real is the word toxic which is a synonym, a pop psychology synonym for narcissism. So I'd rather talk about, and I'm not saying to you this, I'm saying people I encounter socially or out in public, if they wanna talk about toxic this and that, I say, well, academically, that the word toxic just means narcissistic. And that which is narcissistic is independent of any demographic group or tribal affiliation. It's all human beings have some narcissism to them, all of us, me too, in the sense that we all have growing to do. We're always evolving and learning and growing how to be better people and how to be kinder uh, to each other. So we all have some narcissism. So I, I call toxic this and that what it is. It's just narcissism. And so by definition, there can't be a toxic second term ever because all human beings have it to equal potential, let's say. So I just wanted to kind of interject that about some of the name calling and memes and buzzwords and hot topics. But consumerism is what you remind me of. If people don't like talking about biology or research studies or getting into an academic debate, fine, we don't have to. Just consider purchasing uh, tendencies and power and purchasing data, consumerism, Males and females both buy certain things. You know, we need domiciles, we need transportation, we need clothing. But then within these, all these various categories, we have very clear but different preferences on average, on a bell curve. Otherwise, marketers would not vigorously study females and males in terms of what do they purchase and then try to tailor their advertising to that biologic sex. Um, nearly destroyed the Gillette company, Procter & Gamble, uh, some of their advertising decisions. So just look to consumerism, perhaps, if people don't want to talk about biology or, or academic studies. It's real. Money, money is deadly serious. So there's no messing around with, um, you know, saying what's correct when it comes to money. <laughs> yeah, and um, many many of you will, will know Gad Sad, um, who is a professor at Concordia University in here in Montreal. He's got a, a, a well-known YouTube channel, The Sad Truth. He, he is a professor of, in, I think he's got dual appointment in the business school and the psychology department. He studies consumer psychology from an evolutionary psychological standpoint. And he, he, is, he is the, exactly says what you just said there, Paul, that the uh, the, the the multinational companies and big businesses has been uh, quicker to the to the ball than some of the academic psychologists and uh, and psychiatrists in terms of understanding human behavior, understanding preferences, understanding proclivities, and understanding what kind of messages or what kind of imagery, what kind of sound will, will actually hit the right spot with men and hit the right spot with women, and what tone and content is likely to. Uh, to, to trigger the right kind of responses that people who are selling things are looking for. 
And I mean, circling back to what we were saying earlier, health services, the traditional health services we have certainly haven't been as um, as quick to understand men and women and their differential ways of processing things and reacting to things in, in the way that we kind of sell our products, I guess we could say, with people working in health, we're, we're trying to sell a system, we're trying to sell therapies, we're trying to sell programs, practices, interventions to, to the clients, and that's the word that we use now in, in psychology, psychiatry. We don't call people patients, or uh, we call them clients or consumers, and uh, that linguistic change has been interesting because it, it hasn't been accompanied by the kind of customer care or the kind of uh, careful thinking that big business puts into their products, the, the shape, nature, marketing of their products, because we haven't seen that in in, in mental health uh, treatments and programs where it's still it's very much of a one size fits all solution, very much like we've done it this way forever, we'll keep on doing it this way, um, very much delivering it from the same kind of grey, ugly, isolated buildings that we've always done it from. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Paul, that we... Uh, we could look at that and learn a lot from the work and consumer behavior and theories of economics and in terms of how that could help men's mental health. So uh, let me ask Jeremy, at this point, you know, how do you talk to yourself at least about what do you think masculinity is? And, I'm, and I want to ask that same question to Dr. Rob. What is it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll throw down here. I mean, there's so much to respond to. I'll try to keep it on track. I mean, the the issue with, with men's mental health and one-size-fits-all approach, men respond really well to mentorship and models that are a pay-it-forward type structure. So you'll see a pretty even gender split, at least comparatively to individual services, places like AA groups, NA groups, right? So Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, people trying to teach a methodology and that gets into what Dr. Whitley was saying about mentorship, by the way. You tap into a mentorship model for men's mental health and you found something because it eliminates the pity. It turns into, I'm teaching you this healing modality, either from, from therapist to patient or from patient to patient, peer models, that create a sense of empowerment to, and I know that word gets overused, but empowering the man to go be active in his healing. Active healing is something, I'm just kind of inventing that term, that, that resonates to a great degree with men. Anything passive or pity-based is a turnoff to most men. I will just throw that out there, um, which dovetails really nicely into what I would consider masculinity. So Dr. Paul, I'll cheat a little bit because you and I have had a few different discussions offline about getting your curriculum out there and what that'll look like to collaborate on some things. And so I've had time to think about what I consider masculinity to be. If I just wanted to throw out my own definition that I was pondering, I would say it's really a, a passion for engagement or a vitality for engagement. I know passion is one of the key terms you throw out. I don't want to, I don't want to give it all away, but I would say really it's the spirit of active forward motion in the face of rejection or in the face of consequences, right? A, a almost a convicted um, motion forward and excitement to move forward. We'll say that. That, uh, I like that a lot. Uh, that actually dovetails with, um, I, I thought it would make sense to just rattle off the known models of psychology, most of which are more modern and recent, 
that there is data that show males respond to. And, and I actually think one of the most recent studies I saw uh, came across my desk uh, was about, I believe, existential therapy for the incarcerated male. That there was some sort, I have to look it up uh, further and look at the actual results statistically, but it was very notable statistically that there was a reduced recidivism rate in the incarcerated male that was associated with existential therapy. And maybe Dr. Rob could eventually comment on that too. But the, 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 uh, the models that uh, uh, Dr. Barry, uh, Dr. Whitley, uh, Louise Lidden, and Martin Seeger uh, speak to in all of their books, um, if I listed them, existential therapy, mentalization therapy, behavioral activation therapy, accept and commit therapy. Notice those latter two are very action-taking, action-oriented, setting of goals and tracking your progress in your goals makes males feel much better, like they're making progress. So it's external and it's not about emoting and vulnerability or even one-on-one -on -one therapy so much as in groups. So when there's mentoring in groups, as you mentioned, Jeremy, NA, AA groups, just men's groups in general, where there's mutual peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, a big factor um, I believe has been um, that all males in a group have something to contribute to each other in terms of expertise. And if they can mutually mentor and share that expertise, they all feel great doing so and, and they feel better in mood and they feel like they've made progress. So group therapy models, um, EMDR uh, is a must, trauma-informed therapy throughout. In part, I think because uh, males are subject to so many opportunities for trauma, um, not more per se than women, but unique to them because they do so many dirty jobs, so many dangerous jobs. They're 95% of workplace deaths in part because of the nature of the jobs that they do. Then there's the military and combat, and then there's incarceration, vast proportion of the incarcerated and in combat roles in the military, that alone uh, is enough to justify um, at least a surveying and concern for is there trauma? And then you combine that with the natural male predilection to, as Dr. Barry and, uh, and, and Drs. Barry and Seeger say, uh, that third concern of males to control the emotions. So combine lots of trauma with the natural tendency to want to control the emotions and feeling good for so doing, feeling more masculine for so doing, then you have a setup for a guy carrying around a lot of trauma that's unprocessed. Unless he gets the chance to be in a group of other peer males and share among them and mutually mentor. And then there's um, compassion-focused therapy is a good one for males. Um, ACT, well, accept and commit therapy I mentioned, um, cognitive analytic therapy, CAT. So those are, and, and then finally, the, the big one of them all is positive psychology with its new branch, positive masculinity. So instead of name calling and shaming males and 
possibly doing them harm, according to research. If you go around, you know, calling a male client or patient toxic, that he needs to shed his toxicity, which really means shed his narcissism, just like all human beings need to do of any background, then th that does him harm. It shames him rather than encouraging him to appeal to the positive that's potential for him to grow character alongside understanding and expression of what I think are his masculine instincts. So character must be accompanied by understanding and expression of the masculine instincts. So these are all the, the therapy models that work for males. Uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, known to be the gold standard for mood, probably not. Um, and not when it's one-on-one -on -one and emoting and sharing of emotion. So given all those models, think about what's common among them. Uh, Present-mindedness, uh, groups, peer-to-peer -peer mentoring are common to most of them, and then action-taking. So one thing uh, Dr. Rob mentioned was something to do with measurement and hierarchies, I think, at least it was loosely associated with hierarchies. I think about uh, how have male combat military structures always have uh, ranks to them throughout human history? Why are they not flat? Uh, why are they ranked? And instead of getting into all kinds of sociologic theories about, you know, about how they're all bad through all, all history, what if there is a natural need among males instinctually to know one's rank and therefore know what tasks to even do. Uh, we're looking at uh, the Ukraine war lately and how Russia is really screwing up in, in their uh, military strategy and structure and uh, execution of the war. And the Ukrainians are at least uh, fending them off or maybe winning and I, I think of, um, you know, the, the communication among rank and the need for males to know, what do I do? Well, the way I know what to do is by way of my rank and who I take orders from. I wonder if there's something just normal and natural about a male instinctual tendency to need to know one's rank in a structure that's not flat, but is stratified in order to even know what to do. And I wonder if we need to know what to do in our lives as ordinary people, not as soldiers, to know what to do next based on where do I, where do I rank among other males that are similar to me? So with that, thank you for, for your definition, Jeremy, and uh, new uh, grist for the mill. And I want to go back to Dr. Rob. Dr. Rob, what do you think masculinity is? Yeah, but before I answer that, I just wanted to build on what you were saying. Very important stuff and very uh, cogently explained. Um, another thing about the military is that I think there are three core things about the military. Everybody has a role from the, the most humble private to the most exalted uh, major general or field marshal. Uh, and your role might, is obviously a, a lot more um, uh, dutiful and onerous if you're a field marshal compared to a private, but you still have a role and it's important and that, that gives you meaning. 
Um, uh, a second thing is that you wear a uniform. And the word uniform is obviously there's a, it's a metaphor as well. We talk about the uniformity of, of a church or uniformity of beliefs. Uh, but that uniform represents some kind of belonging um, which and camaraderie with others that you're part of this unit and others are not part of that unit. And your uniform often will have a unit logo or insignia on it, which is different to your other units and gives you that sense of belonging and camaraderie and that kind of peer support in a way which others may not have. Um, the third thing I want to say, maybe the most important, is that in the military, and I know a bit about the military because I, I used to be in the reserve when I was younger, um, is uh, uh, that there's a script. Everybody has a script and everybody knows their role. And, and your script is that, and you're training constantly uh, along the lines of a script that if A happens, you do B. If B happens, you do C. If, if you try to, uh, if if you're defending a, a fixed position, you do X. If you're attacking a fixed position, you do Y. And one person's role is different to another. And somebody's a medic, somebody's a, a an engineer, somebody is a, a, is, is a leader, somebody is uh, planning. And, and I think the importance of scripts, building on the theme of what we've talked about today, um, is it, it, something we're not talking about enough as well, um, that we have these kind of scripts about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a, a male, what it means to be masculine, however we want to talk, use those terms. Um, and those scripts have changed over time and every year, every few years, they're changing and changing. Uh, and we hear one narrative now that the script about what it means to be a man is to be vulnerable, to be crying, to be talking about your emotions, talking about your feelings. Um, and this script is quite popular on social media and some celebrities are talking about this even royalty Prince William I heard him make some speech about mental health where he was talking about this and and I think that's very dangerous and a very naive script to say for many reasons um, firstly if you talk talk about your vulnerability and and your uh, your weaknesses and your psychological issues as a man um, a lot of people don't want to know they don't want to hear um, in my own research, I've had people tell me that they've phoned up their brother or sister to talk about their issues and, and their, their, their brother or sister said, well, I'm watching a movie, sorry, I, I, can you call me back tomorrow? Um, there isn't a reservoir of competent, trained people out there willing and able to help people with men's mental health issues when they actually raise their real world, messy, uh, poignant issues with others. Um, secondly, uh, I think it's a very naive uh, script as well because it kind of implies that there's one modality of healing and that there's a one-size-fits-all solution when there's not. Uh, for many men, it's um, uh, crying and talking about their emotions might be helpful, but going back to the biopsychosocial model that you raised, Dr. Paul, um, we do know that for a lot of men, a, a very helpful way of healing after some issues or some stress is, to, is physical exercise, to go running, to go and hiking, to go kayaking across a lake. Um, we know from new research the importance of wilderness interventions or bushcraft interventions. These are um, uh, interventions where people go away for a weekend or for a week. They don't take their cell phone. Uh, they have to fend for themselves. They camp, they build a fire, they, they hunt, they fish. Uh, some men who are better at this than others will show people how to fish, how, how to hunt, how to how to gutter fish and cook it, how to make a fire from scratch, etc. And, and we know that from some research that this is a 
this is actually very helpful for men. Uh, and the third reason why this kind of na this narrative of, uh, of the simplistic narrative of men talking or this script that's been kind of thrust upon us in a top-down manner by people who don't really know much about men's mental health um, is that people can use this information against you. Uh, um, I've done a lot of research on employment and mental health and people men tell me, well, of course, I'm not going to tell my boss that I've got mental health issues. I'm not going to talk about it to my colleagues because when word gets about, there's no way I'm going to get a promotion. Uh, there's no way I'm going to get the, the, the good task to, to go on a business trip to Paris um, uh, compared to the guy who, who doesn't have a reputation of having mental health issues. Um, if you work in the police, the military, fire department, these kind of jobs, forget it. If you, if you talk about mental health issues, you often get a mark on your file and you're going to be overlooked for a lot of interesting deployments and jobs, etc. Um, and it can even be used against you by your own family. We've, we've done research uh, uh, with men, and then I remember quite a few men telling me in one research study that, that their own wives would shame them when they started talking about mental health issues. And they would say, you know, what are you? What kind of man are you? What kind of husband are you? You're crying and you're talking about mental health. Me, me, and, me and our three kids need to be fed, and you're, you're, you're the man of the household. What's going on? Dr. Rob, that is striking. Yeah. Uh, what what yeah. you just said is is striking because as you were talking, I heard you say some things like um, thrust upon us regarding your point number one regarding there being a uh, shifting and changing of what is the definition of masculinity. Now it's vulnerable. It, it needs to be soft. It needs to cry. It needs to emote. And you said thrust upon us. And then you and then you talked about men's wives in your studies, looking down on them, shaming them for violating the male imperative to not emote, to uh, control the emotions. So it, 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 it strikes me the biopsychosocial model applies here because it, unless the man came up with the idea himself out of his emotion or out of his uh, instincts, to behave a certain way and it felt natural and normal and right for him rather than him hearing in media advertising blogs magazines uh, surrounded by media telling him telling him what to be that sounds like a sociologic effort not a biologic um inquiry it sounds like a sociologic campaign as opposed to a biologic study and biology and sociology are not the same at all they don't work by the same principles at all so that's you know that's the reaction uh, that, that i have to some of the observations you're making even the people that are on the receiving end of the male trying to take on a sociologic role thrust upon him that masculinity should be sharing, uh, emoting, let's talk about my weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and then their own wives saying, why don't you stop that? It's, you know, it's unappealing. Interesting. Could there be biologic-based instincts causing both sides of that discussion? Well, when I when I think about uh, this area, I do agree with how you just formulated it. That it's 
I feel this script and this narrative has been externally imposed. It's almost like a, a like a public health campaign in a way. It's been repeated co consistently and um, uh, insistently by many different quarters, none of whom really have much training or experience in working with, with men or, or, and I'm not even sure they have men's well-being at heart. And there's a cynical part of me that, that, that thinks that there are certain people out there who, who would like to see men crying and being vulnerable and uh, uh, and talking about their suffering openly that they would actually sadistically kind of enjoy it to hear to, to see men in that state and hear men in that state so uh, like I said that's a bit of a cynical kind of perspective but from uh, some of the people that I've heard using this language um, I don't think they have men's best interests at heart and um, at a, a biological level um, we all remember the APA, American Psychiatric Association, uh, guidelines for working with men that came out a couple of years ago that were roundly criticised and actually have, uh, that APA has since recanted and reformed their guidelines to make them a bit more pro-social with, with regards to how they talk about men. But 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 these guidelines were, were basically saying men, uh, the root of men's mental health problems were the fact that men are taking, they, they're prone to taking risks, that they're adventurers, that they are... Uh, that they're in denial about their problems, um, and that they, uh, and that this leads to issues, and uh, when in fact the research shows that risk taking is actually very good for your mental health, and that's actually one of the tenets of cognitive behavioural therapy, that if you're somebody with social anxiety, the therapist will say to you, well look, go go to a bus stop and talk to the, the ask the person next to you what the time is, and they're not going to punch you, they're not going to kill you, you're not going to have a heart attack. You're going to actually enjoy the encounter and they might even talk about the weather and you'll, you'll have a nice interaction uh, this level that's a small risk that somebody can take um, we also know that in terms of employment a lot of job satisfaction comes from taking risks and that if, and that's why men are attracted to jobs like the military the police uh, working um, in, in dangerous occupations working on ships uh, transport manufacturing etc so uh, I, 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 that narrative is uh, is just odd to me. I don't. It's it's against uh, the scientific evidence, against the biological, psychological, and kind of social evidence. And, it, and I, I think it just shows how the uh, Overton window for men's mental health has kind of been controlled by people who I, I don't think necessarily have men's men's issues at heart and and have a kind of vested interest in. Uh, in some ways and trying to reform men in a way which is biologically impossible but will uh, which some people think is is possible I guess but but also I'm, I'm not necessarily I would not be too concerned by seeing men like crying and vulnerable and in pain and uh, like I said I, we need to change that conversation well uh, there's something uh, quite logical and obvious uh, as I heard you speaking if the data really clearly is saying males thrive and do well and improve in their mood problems and their success and their beneficence to others and benefit to society through doing actions and improving in skill out in the world as opposed to emoting and showing vulnerability it's very clear that they do improve by not showing vulnerability and not emoting, but instead focusing on actions and goals and achieving them, 
and it works, then why do we have to try to force them to do what doesn't work when it's really clear what does work? If the end goal is their success, their happiness, their beneficence, and, and their contribution to society, and there's a clear path how it's those models of therapy that are goal setting, strategizing, action taking, and not emoting, why aren't we just doing those? Because it gets the, it gets the proposed goal accomplished, which is benefit to society and improvement in the mood disorder. Yeah, I mean, the word you mentioned there is success. That was another 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 word which um, the APA took issue with when they released its guidelines and saying that men are kind of focused too much on success and you know very naive from a real world perspective because that's terrible god uh, forbid that that, people, that humans yeah, no. be successful that's terrible yeah and and imagine you've got a wife and three kids you know some people on the podcast maybe do imagine being successful and bringing in an income and being able to put a roof over their those heads and and and, and working hard and uh, you know, imagine the opposite, that you're unsuccessful, you're unemployed and your kids have no money and I don't have food on the table. It sounds like from the APA, that's what they would prefer, that they, they were equating what seemed to me very social, personal and social good, success, risk-taking, adventure, which we know are signs of a mentally healthy person and which we encourage in children for their psychological development. Um, we were the APA and others were basically saying that these are part of a of toxic masculinity and we need to deprogram men away from these behaviors and beliefs and these um, these are characteristics which we see in a lot of men. And um, like I said, it's inconsistent with cognitive behavioral therapy where we often teach people that mastery of an area can be important, like learn a new language, learn a new, acquire a new skill and uh, become more competent in, in certain activities of your life, whether it's how you interpret the world to more simple tasks in your job or your everyday life, and that these little building blocks lead to a more resilient individual. So, it, it, like I said, it seems very odd that there are elements in the culture which are trying to diminish these, uh, these activities and characteristics, which we know from psychological science, social science, biological science, to be part of what it means to be a a resilient man and in some cases a resilient woman and it's um my book is talking about how we need to get away and change um from that narrative and, and to get more to a narrative um, um i can't remember what word you used earlier earlier dr paul but we um i sometimes say a pro-social narrative a pro-social masculinity or positive i think you said positive masculinity yeah 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 there's a division a new division of positive psychology, which which is really well accepted and a very interesting model. Martin Seligman at Penn, um, mm -hmm. positive masculinity is, is the new model emerging from that. And it focuses on perhaps not on masculinity itself, because there still isn't a working real uh, valid definition out there of what is masculinity. If, if people are saying it's all these other things and it shifts and changes, um, with the sands of time and it's like the stock market every week it changes um it, at, at least they're using character virtue character growth 
which is the opposite of pathologic narcissism. Growing out of the narcissism of childhood, the positive psychologists are using that at least to encourage males. It still doesn't define masculinity proper because females, of course, uh, would love to learn and grow and become more effective, beneficent people, beneficial to society and shed their narcissism. Um, so they're not there yet, but it's a really good theory, the positive psychology, positive uh, masculinity. Um, I wanna return to uh, something very, very simple uh, that Jeremy mentioned, and he mentioned the word passion. And I think it might be useful uh, to our listeners uh, to simplify in this way. Uh, my understanding of the uh, the world of philosophy immediately predating Freud, the neurologist Freud, as he was developing the first therapy model, uh, psychodynamics, Freudian psychoanalysis. It was the linguist school of philosophy that, that was the latest school at that time. And to simplify their, their view of what is the structure of the mind? The mind is structured like a story like a language telling a story. And I always thought that was fascinating to look at words and decode them for psychological functionality. So I've thought for many years about the word passion in this regard. And I wanna hear your perspectives, Jeremy and, and Rob, about what does the word passion mean to you? But I, I first wanna say to me, the word passion is not just an emotion. It's something deeper. If I had to localize it in an evolutionary psychologist area of the mind, I would say it's in the reptilian brain and, and unconscious and bodily felt. And here's why. Uh, I have heard the word passion used lots and lots in the arena of romance, love, and sex. We all have. You know, we think of passion most most immediately and frequently as pertaining to sex, as in sexual passion. But what are the other ways, the only other ways that word has ever been used? It strikes me as being used in a, a sense of life and death issues, like a crime of passion or life and death story going back 2000 years, the passion of the Christ or passion plays in medieval times. And that was not about love or sex. That was about a death. And we hear people say, that's my passion project or my life's passion. And that's not about sex, but it seems to pertain to vitality, survival and and feeling excited to be alive, excited to wake up in the morning. So it strikes me that the word passion is only used in, in two ways, that pertaining to sex and reproduction and that pertaining to survival and vitality, that, that spectrum, which ought to remind us all of to theorists, Freud, uh, with his notion of libido, which did not mean sexual appetite to him. It meant life force, AKA vitality, feeling truly alive, 
or viable even. And it might make us think of Darwin, survival and reproduction, surviving long enough to reproduce. And if surviving long enough to reproduce is inherent in all of our, what, instincts, and if the instincts are localized in the reptilian brain, the unconscious mind, automatic responses to the environment, then I conclude, and I'm, I'm just putting this out there, something I've thought about for a long time. I've not researched on experimental subjects with this, but I, it strikes me that the word passion pertains to uh, that which is instinctual. And it strikes me that passion is a synonym for what men mean when they say they feel more masculine or less masculine. And let's be fair, I, I think when women say they feel really, really good and maybe even feminine, they feel passion, excited to be alive. They feel in their element. So in being fair, this isn't really just about men, uh, this part of our talk. I think passion pertains to masculine and feminine instincts, and that when they are expressed and used and free uh, to be expressed and used, the person feels more alive and excited and, and intense pleasure at, at being. And that can also ripple into romance and the strength of, uh, of a partnership or a marriage or, or a love relationship. Um, so that, that's what I think of the word passion. And I feel that that word is a synonym for what we have called masculinity and what we have called femininity. I think they're the same as passion. And their opposite is, you know, the worst feeling uh, to a male client or patient uh, from the literature, from the research is shame. And I think the opposite of masculinity is shame. And I think when we shame a person, we diminish their masculinity or their femininity, depending on their biologic sex, um, which then gives rise to yet another uh, bodily felt state, rage. So I think passion, uh, is the opposite of rage and shame. And I think rage can be a result of shame, of being shamed, which is a diminishment of masculinity or femininity. So, whew, so I just thought I'd put that out there as a, as a thought, an idea, and I'm curious uh, your reactions. Well, um, I mean, I guess I can say, you know, when I was growing up, we used to hear a lot about the Passion of Christ, which was, and um, there was Easter, which everybody knows about, but the, the season before Easter is, is known as Passion Tide, when we're thinking about Christ's suffering and uh, the um, uh, the deeper issues of suffering per se and, and things like that. Um, and, and I guess when I was listening to you talk there, Dr. Paul, I was thinking of um, Lionel Trilling's book, uh, Sincerity and Authenticity, which I read many years ago when I was a student. Uh, and I do remember the last page of that book was, was very striking. And I, I can't remember his exact words, but he says something like, um, 
uh, everybody wants to be, he was talking about the modern age and saying, uh, and this was written many years ago, I think, uh, um, sincerity, and, sincerity and authenticity. Uh, but he said, everybody wants to be a Christ, but nobody wants to go out there and, and heal the sick, talk to the lepers, um, walk from village to village, uh, argue with the rabbis, etc. Uh, and his point was, from what I could see at least, is that um, you don't get a status uh, without hard work and without deep thought and without planning and w without um, uh, these kind of important uh, characteristics that, that, that lead to these outcomes. And, and I feel in this modern age where we're in now in the 2020s, um, there has been a decoupling of the uh, of the the work that is necessary to an achieve an outcome. Uh, we see it in the self-esteem kind of literature, which others have critiqued um, beyond me. And I, I talk about this in my book, where everybody gets a medal, everybody gets a participation ribbon, ribbon, uh, ribbon, uh, and that the self-esteem has not has been decoupled from actual kind of accomplishment. And and I feel in men's mental health, we, we should we should be thinking about this because men have their passions and passions is another synonym for like interest and hobbies. And for many men, that's, you know, repairing things. For some men, it's doing work in the yard. For other men, it's like mentoring younger people or helping out their fellows in, a, in peer support, etc. Um, and, and that brings a real deep spiritual meaning. And to leap, leap back to what was said earlier, I have not met any man in, in my, any of my studies who, who wants to be a passive recipient of care. Who, 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 who wants to be an object of pity, who just wants to be someone who takes, 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 that they want to put something back in a, in a kind of meaningful manner, uh, whether it's into the mental health system or in general life or into society. Uh, and, and the way the, the current mental health system is configured doesn't allow for that kind of, that work, that effort that, that, that men typically want to expand and, and want to engage in um, and, and doesn't allow for those proclivities in terms of kind of in my book, I talk about the difference between talk, uh, talk therapies and, and talk talk modalities of healing and, and, and action modalities of healing or skill-based modalities of healing that allow people to acquire and share skills um, or allow people to get involved in some kind of action that leads to a positive outcome, whether it's um, horticulture or whether it's helping young people or those bushcraft interventions where there are older people helping younger people learn about fishing and hunting and, and other activities. So, so I, 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 I think uh, passion, as you define it there, Dr. Paul, has, has been stripped away from uh, mental health um, treatments, the typical mental health treatments as a distinct lack of kind of passion and personality and individuality has become a kind of robotic in many ways, kind of one size fits all solution. And, um, and, and we need to tailor things much better to people's individual passions and, and the proclivities that we see in demographics in society to make it more accessible and engaging to them. That is great. That is great. Thank you, Dr. Rob. Well, let me share, uh, let me share one other idea um, that I've carried around for a long time. Um, you know, one of the reasons that uh, 30 years ago or so I went into psychiatry instead of surgery, I left surgery abandoned it and went into psychiatry was because um i love the arts and literature um and i i thought psychiatry might offer the most uh, juice of uh being a lifelong learner 
from both the arts and sciences that I could possibly find, at, at least in medicine. And uh, somebody who was influential on me, uh, my very first uh, proctor as a medical student in psychiatry was named uh, Horatio Fabrega, and he's still alive. And it, it's interesting, he's what's called an anthropologic psychiatrist, he calls himself. So he studies world cultures alongside uh, psychological principles, and yet he's a prescriber and a professor. And uh, he once told me that um, he studies vampires. <laughs> and, and I thought, that that is fascinating. A psychiatrist who studies vampires, tell me more. And he, he said, really, what it is, is a study of narcissism. He said, throughout all world cultures, even those completely disconnected from each other, all world cultures throughout all human history have had monster stories, um, especially zombies, vampires, and werewolves. And if you study the story motifs of monster stories throughout world cultures, you find psychological advice on how to stop narcissism in others, how to identify it, how to deal with it, possibly how to correct it or turn it around, including in yourself. So all of the motifs like uh, vampires can't see themselves in a mirror. Um, so that shows the oblivious narcissist. Um, you stab a vampire with a dagger to the heart. That's the, the dagger of truth uh, confronting the narcissist. Um, daylight melts the vampire. Well, that's the light of truth as well. So all of these are symbolisms for the, the psychopathology of narcissism and what to do about it. And I always thought it was fascinating how stories, myth, uh, folklore, you can pull from for the universals that inform us of psychological principles. Even though they aren't rendered in modern terminology, they can be translated. So to wit, that those of you who like Shakespeare and believe that Shakespeare had a very complete canon of exploration of human emotions and behaviors, and take note that everything in Shakespeare has a predecessor in the ancient Greeks 2,500 years ago, there's a lexicon just sitting there for us to pull from, which Carl Jung did substantially in, in his idea of there being a collective unconscious and universal archetypes in human psychology. You know, and it's one of the lesser discussed uh, schools of psychology today. It's, it's not data-driven, it's not big data, um, it's not high-tech sexy in that way. But it's very interesting in terms of uh, drawing from the arts and humanities to learn about psychology. And I would call your attention to the Greek canon, the ancient Greek canon of mythology, where they have all these gods and goddesses who, are, who tend to be known for one kind of behavioral situation. Like they have one big dilemma that's like their, well, the Achilles heel, literally, and they have one superpower or, or related superpowers that all center on one uh, kind of MO, one way of existing, whether it be Zeus, 
the twin godhead with Hera, the, the, the god and goddess uh, administrator gods, um, Apollo and his sister Artemis, Ares, the war god, and his sister Athena, the war god, who prefers diplomacy first before war, um, Hephaestus and his wife, Aphrodite, who cheated on him with Ares, and the list goes on and on and on. Dionysus, all the heroes, Perseus, Theseus, um, Hercules, all of these ancient Greek figures tended to have like one thing they're known for, almost like today's superhero canon. You know, Batman lives in the Batcave. Well, he's Hades. He's literally Hades. Spider-Man is Apollo. Um, Superman is Zeus. Wonder Woman is Hera. You know, the modern superheroes have direct, you know, heritages back to these ancient Greeks. Well, one thing I've really clearly noticed when I've heard, um, you know, world famous uh, authors, researchers like Dr. Whitley and John Barry, Louise Lydon, Martin Seeger and others in their in their research, when they study and, and, and elucidate some principle unique to males or unique to females, in my mind, I almost always can peg it down to one of these ancient Greek deities in the Greek lexicon. For example, Dr. Rob mentioned a while back about um, men needing freedom, I think, and, and how there's freedom of choice and career choice, and how there's risk, how men have a predilection for risk, and they take risky jobs not because they're forced to, but because they like it somehow. Well, that's the Odysseus instinct, I think. Or when, when males need hierarchies to know what to do, what is my role? What is my script in the military? If I'm a captain or a private or a colonel, that reminds me of the Zeus instinct, the chief administrator god who delegates authority downhill in ranks. The same with Hera, who does the same thing but in a more nuanced, uh, more of a feminine way. And Apollo, who's the Renaissance man, um, that's the man feeling fantastic about himself through study and learning, getting an education, making educational progress, and looking to logic and facts to argue with. And his sister Artemis does the same thing. And she is Diana, the, the night huntress, so her gift, just like Apollo, is for precision of facts and, 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 you know, hunting in the moonlight takes incredible eyesight and sharpens the eyesight. So it, it's, the, it's the consumerist part, too, that, uh, that women are known for, for being amazing at organization and finance um, and management. That's the Artemis. So... You know, for the last two decades, I almost always have noticed there's a direct correlation to the story form in one of the Greek myths. When I see bits of data that's more uh, in academic terminology rendered, and I like using the Greek names as a nomenclature for what I think are masculine instincts and feminine instincts. And like Jung would observe, why did these myths last thousands of years if they didn't have some universal seeing of ourselves in the stories? 
across all cultures and history. So I thought I would put that out there. Uh, I suspect that is a maybe useful uh, nomenclature for what we're talking about. If we want to subdivide the behavioral tendencies that are automatic, instinctual, and universal among uh, males and females throughout history and across all cultures. Jeremy or Dr. Rob? <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm happy to chip in a bit there. One thing I think uh, to go back is that you said you were attracted into psychiatry because of the way it would be able, you, you envisioned it would be able to integrate uh, the arts, humanities, English literature, and um, science. Science, obviously. When we go back in time, um, we think that psychiatry had one foot in science and one foot in the arts um, and humanities, one could say. Uh, and if you think of Carl Jung or you think of Freud or you think of uh, Carl Jaspers, the founding fathers of psychiatry, they're all very uh, well versed in, in, in Greek mythology, in theology, scripture, um, Shakespeare, cult and cultural anthropology, and they would integrate this into their kind of theories and thinking. And I think one negative thing about psychiatry is that it's kind of transmogrified into a, from the biopsychosocial model, where you would, you would entertain many of these things, into a kind of bio-bio-bio model, where there's a huge focus on neuroscience, genetics, and uh, pharmacological interventions. Um, and I remember having a, a friendly discussion with a colleague once over a beer, and he was advising me to read this uh, we were talking about psychiatry and religion, and he said, well, re religion, they don't update their books, whereas I, I read a methodology book, and it's been updated 12 times, and every time there's a new method, there's a uh, there's a new update, and, and why should I take religion seriously? It hasn't been updated for 2,000 years. And, and I said, well, if you look at the Christian Bible, the first book of the Christian Bible was, was I think, written in 600 BC and the last book was written in 180, so it was updated over 700 year period, um, and and uh, and it's a living document that's interpreted by people, um, uh, which is a kind of long way of saying that the the ancient cultures, uh, the Greek uh, mythology you're referring to, the, the Judeo-Christian culture, um, has evolved over hundreds of years, basically as a response to the problems that people in those societies experienced and to the issues that they needed solving. And that, that accumulated wisdom is very, apart from you, Paul, I don't know many people who are thinking about how that could be integrated into the, into the categorization and to the understanding and, and to the future uh, treatments and programs of, of people suffering from mental health issues. Um, we now just categorize people according to their um, their symptoms or their ge ge genetic structure or brain morphologies in, in a lot of the studies I see. And, and I, I really think men's mental health opens a window of opportunity for kind of integration, return back to psychiatry's roots where it was very informed by cultural, anthropological, anthropological sociological perspectives, whether it was through Durkheim or through Carl Jaspers or through uh, Jung. 
And uh, I think your your uh, categorization there, Paul, was um, can't say I'm as expert in Greek mythology as you are, but it certainly was engaging to me, and I, I could recognize a lot of what you were saying. And I'm sure many many patients would or clients or consumers would uh, would recognize what what you were saying and 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 feel that would be helpful in their um, in a clinical encounter to, to discuss and then to integrate into a treatment program. Well, well, I appreciate that, Rob. I, uh, you know, I, I think at the very least, I, I find it handy, at least in myself, in my own thinking, to have some sort of normal person language for nomenclature. Uh, I, people can at least understand what what is Superman, what is Wonder Woman, what is Batman, what is Spider Man. I mean, those are stories of today, but they're based literally on the ancient Greek deities. And I'm not saying there is a Zeus flying around or something like that, but I like the name uh, to be able to label the behavior in question. And I almost wonder if um, I've run men's groups for many years, like 20 years, and and I've often wondered or, or tried to loosely incorporate the idea of, okay, if, if Odysseus is about freedom, adventure, and discovery, the, the way he was in his stories, and if men love the feeling of freedom to go be themselves and, and discover something, uh, travel abroad, have an adventure and enjoy it, really enjoy it, what would it be like to give homework to a depressive male who feels uh, locked up and restricted by all of his duties and responsibilities? And, Maybe he's married, maybe he's a father, maybe he has financial obligations, and they weigh on him. What would it be like for him to take a, you know, take a, a adventure tour to South America and see Machu Picchu that he's always has, has wanted to do? That's the Odysseus instinct, I think, in, in my nomenclature for myself. And, and I think he might feel good doing that. Maybe it would relieve some of his dysthymia or uh, the man who's never been in a fist fight, never won anything, never won a prize, never won a medal, never won a trophy. If he took a liking late in life, like a relative I have of rugby and took it up as a middle-aged man, a dangerous sport, but really took to it and loved it and felt so supported by his teammates who live around the world, New Zealand, Australia, England, Canada, and who tell him they can come visit them anytime he wants and stay as long as he wants to stay. And they could work at, he could work at their business if he wants to try a change of pace. And it's so enlivening for him, my relative, to have taken on a risky yet unnecessary sport in middle age like that. I think he's working on the Aries instinct, the instinct to fight and win, not to harm others, but gentlemanly competition that uh, enriches his sense of self and feeling alive. And I wonder if a treatment program could use these specific kinds of homework or activities uh, that would at least relieve some dysthymia feelings that a lot of males have. I've often wondered about that. And I'll tell you one other little story from the men's groups of the last 20 years for me. I always ask a question, especially if the topic of romance comes up. 
And in a model I developed that I call romantic dynamics, it has steps to it, just like any animal in the wild has steps of courtship. And if you don't do one of the steps, then the courtship is off, it's over, there will not be offspring. Well, step two in my system makes use of um, the woman, let's say it's a, a heterosexual you know, dating relationship. The woman singles out the man as special somehow and preferred over other suitors at which the man then singles out the woman as special and more preferred than other potential dates. Well, I call this the Hera instinct and the Zeus instinct in that model. And what the Hera instinct does is shows a an almost maternal-like preference as a mother would toward a son over other males, that he is her special one, um, elevating him in rank uh, among all those other males, which is the domain of Zeus. Zeus is the top-ranked male in Mount Olympus. All of this talk, what I'm leading to is the question I ask them is, in your life, has any woman ever told you, other than your mother, that she really believes in you? That she really believes in you, in what you're all about, what your life is about, what your mission in life is, what your passion in life is? Has a woman other than your mother ever told you, I believe in you? And you know what? Every single men's group I ever did, I asked that question. And there was silent weeping in the audience because the answer was very often no. And wow, what a, what a profound realization. Not a case controlled research study, more of a survey over 20 years. The question, what woman other than your mother has ever told you, I believe in you? And then there are silent tears among men who are in groups of men. What do you guys think of that? I mean, I'll jump in here. No, Rob, you go ahead. Cause I gotta, I gotta go in a minute anyway. I mean, I'll be quick, sir. Cause I think we were gonna finish in five minutes. Just to say that, um, I mean, it brings me right back to the beginning. It's a good, maybe it's a good place to end that when you take away, um, I said right at the beginning that men used to be much more involved in civil society than they are currently. They used to be involved in military units, reserve units. They were uh, working in sports clubs. They were helping out at um, uh, youth groups, etc. Um, churches, they would be mentored. Um, so when I, just your question there, and I, I might be older than some of the men who've been in your groups there, Paul. Uh, I've had people who have clearly believed in me, but I found them in you know, beyond your family, in, in I've been involved in churches for many years. I've been, I was in, like I said, I've been in a military unit. Um, I've, uh, uh, I've been involved in uh, other, I've been involved in political organizations where I've been uh, mentored by people who were, who were older and wiser than I was at, at that time. Uh, and if men are not getting involved in those kind of activities anymore, and we know statistically, there is a decline in attending a place of worship, military units, sports clubs, involvement in um, in civil society organisations. 
um, then that men are not going to be contributing to society in that way, but also won't be receiving the positive mentorship and benefits that come from that. Um, so it's kind of what you say there, Paul, it's a bit of a sad way to end in a way, because it's, I'm, I'm sure that's a common experience for many men in this modern world. There's more isolation and, and loneliness, and we've just had two years of COVID, and uh, um, in, in Canada, we've just legalized cannabis. Um, we know statistics about young men playing computer games, and, and, and you know, the, the fact is I do know a lot of young men who will just sit at home, play computer games, smoke cannabis. That's what they'll, they'll be doing this weekend. Oh, ghost, ghost boys, like in Japan, a million, a million men, uh, 40 or younger, who don't work, don't date, and stay in their parents' basement playing video yeah. games. Ghost, ghost boys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the UK, they call them meets. N-E-E-T-S, which means not in education, employment, or training. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it's clearly a cross-cultural failure to launch is another phrase they use about it. It's a, it's a cross-cultural kind of phenomena, and, and the more we, we denigrate men and the more we fail to pay attention to their issues in, in education and in employment and, in, um, uh, and the more we don't create a space where men can kind of contribute and, and ma older males can mentor younger males, then... You know, I don't see the problem really getting any better. But, uh... It must appeal to them. It, it must appeal more than working or dating, or they wouldn't do it. And you know well, what I wonder? I wonder if it's the Hades instinct to go inside the creative mind, the unconscious, in a cave, like Batman. Batman had a cave. And to be solitary and play video games. It's masculinizing. It, I mean, it, it could it, be. It benefits the man to go heal himself or isolate, to get out of the stress of the world, the Hades instinct. So, for what it's worth, I mean, my my view is more that it's a it's a way of like killing pain. That, that there's some kind of pain that many of these men may be experiencing, or trauma, and just losing your mind in a computer game, or or even more ex yeah. existentially, a kind of you know, the existential philosophers would say it's a failure to, you know, thrust yourself into the world and to engage with the world. And it's, um, remember Eric Fromm's book, Fear of Freedom or Escape from Freedom. And, uh, oh, yeah. that, you know, he said there was an instinct of people who were happy to be kind of lead a robotic lifestyle and, and to, uh, but, but it's not a deep instinct. It's more of a superficial kind of one. And, and, and we need to encourage people to like thrust themselves into the world and engage with it. And, well, I want to end on a positive note. Um, I'd, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to thank you both uh, for being here. And, and I know we haven't had audience participation this time around. Uh, it's for good reason. But future talks, we, we are going to have audience participation on Clubhouse. Um, I wanted to say that uh, the question I asked of my men's groups was, has a woman other than your mother ever told you literally verbatim i believe in you and that's what led to tears in every men's group so i wonder if one of the most powerful positive things a woman if she so chooses and if it is true that she admires something about a, a man and believes in what he's trying to do or, or what he's all about with his life if she were to tell him so.
I believe in you. It could be a profound effect on that male. Um, and maybe he's depressed or disappointed and it might utterly revolutionize things for him to hear that. Those of you who are female therapists to male clients or patients, I wonder if there's some uh, vernacular that's similar to that. I believe in you. So I thought I would end with that and really thank you both uh, for being here. And we'll open it up to discussion in, in future talks. Thank, uh, thanks to, to you in the audience as well. Feel free to message us. You can leave messages on Clubhouse and uh, we'll get back to you over the next day or two. Thank you, yeah, Dr. Thank Rob. You, Paul. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy. Thanks, Paul. Thanks to the audience. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and uh, uh, learned a lot and uh, happy to contribute next another time if I can. Thank um, you both. Yeah.